Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Nikki Pazeshki joins us today from San Francisco. Nikki is a partner at Felicis Ventures, where he has invested in companies including Guild Education, Trusted Health, Guideline, Do Not Pay, and Clio. Prior to joining Felicis in 2016, Nikki worked at Summit Partners and Vista Equity Partners. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And congratulations on the newborn. That's so exciting. Thanks. Yeah, she's our little Corona baby, born March 19th. <laughs> Uh, the same week as shelter in place. So it's been a lot of fun having her around while we're, while we're working from home and, and uh, figuring out how to, you know, live the right way during this crazy time. That's tough. That's really tough. My, my toddler is three and that's been difficult enough because my wife works full time, but, um, but also, you know, what a great, exciting time for, for you and in your family. Um, for sure. But yeah, can you tell us a bit about your background and your path to venture? I know you've worked for for multiple firms before uh, Felicis would like to hear a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, just starting my career, like my goal from day one in college has always been to get, was always to get on the buy side. It's just, you know, something that I've always thought was super fun investing and, uh, you know, finding really interesting companies um, that you can get uh, before everyone else figures out that they're also really interesting companies has just been something that I've had a lifelong passion for, you know, from middle school when I would invest in, uh, you know, McDonald's stock and talk to my dad about which stocks to buy to, um, you know, being part of multiple investment clubs at USC. Uh, for me, it was always kind of like, how can I get to the buy side as fast as possible? And for, it didn't really matter if it was venture or private equity or public markets. I, I just wanted to invest. And so my first job out of undergrad was at Vista Equity Partners, which is an enterprise software focused um, private equity firm. I was there for about three years in Austin, Texas. Um, had an incredible experience, um, but wanted to move uh, to the West Coast. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles. My wife is from Hong Kong. And we both thought it would be better um, to come out to the Bay um, or somewhere in California and be closer to home for both of us. So moved out here. I actually worked for a place called the Climate Corporation, uh, which is an agriculture technology company um, that was backed by Felicis Ventures at the time. Uh, worked there for about a year, had a little bit of operating experience and realized, you know what, I actually really want to be on the buy side again. And so I went and worked for Summit Partners, was there for a year, learned how to uh, you know, do some hardcore outbound sourcing, um, get in front of founders, how to ask the right question, get to the bottom of the story uh, within a 30 minute to hour long call, um, filter through a bunch of companies and, and, and basically like really honed in, um, you know, just how to kind of create your own deal flow and your own pipeline, which has been really good for my career. Uh, about a year into to Summit, um, the, the team at Felicis 
uh, randomly reached out to me through a mutual connection and, and, and we got a coffee. And at the time it was, uh, you know, I, I had no interest in, in venture. I, I hadn't even thought about it, to be honest. I kind of want to go back into PE, but they made a really good pitch. They were like, hey, we're, we're four partners right now. We need a, a, a junior person to come join us and, um, uh, you know, go out and source a bunch of deals for us, go out and just find new, exciting investment opportunities. You know, it's a totally generalist firm. Uh, we, we don't have that many people. There's a lot of opportunity to kind of rise through the ranks here. And, uh, you know, you can just basically go chase whatever excites you. And, and, and that, that was really appealing to me. Um, you know, having been at Vista where it was like just enterprise software and, and, uh, uh, summit, which was like very much outbound sourcing oriented. This was kind of like a, a melding of the two, but also had a lot more like, uh, free range to roam and go find amazing companies that I was excited about. So I joined Felicis about four, four years ago today. Um, and, uh, it's been a really fun ride started as a senior associate and, um, have been fortunate enough to work with some awesome companies and, and, and uh, continue working with my awesome team at Felicis. That's that's great. That's great. I've got a couple associates at the firm that are are uh, doing some hardcore sourcing themselves right now. Any any nice. quick tips on uh, sourcing techniques or tricks or you know things from the old toolkit that uh, would be helpful to my guys or anyone in the audience? Um, you know, I, I should, there, you know, unfortunately, like the best advice I can give is to just you know you just got to keep pounding the pavement and keep on. Uh, on, on working hard and, and you're, you're going to kiss a, what they say, kiss a lot of frogs, which is like a lot of companies <laughs> that might not be the best fit for you. But I think, you know, the best is to just use each one of those calls and each one of those opportunities to talk to a founder as a, as a learning opportunity and just get closer to the right answer. Right. So you'd be like, Oh, this company might not work out because like, this is the issue that they're facing. Okay, well, if that's the issue, then the next time I'm going to talk to another company, I'm going to be looking for like a company that has solved X problem that I've talked to in the past and realized that that wasn't working. Um, and so, so I think you can just, instead of just like checking the box and just kind of moving on after each one, try to take each one as a learning opportunity and get closer to the right answer. That's great. That's great. I love it. So we we have had Aiden on the show. Um, so we've we've heard yep. a, a bit about this. Yeah, it was great. I mean, he is... Um, he, he is one of the best. I think the secret is out on that and everyone knows it now, but my goodness, the things that you guys are doing at Felicis are just incredible. But um, remind us what the thesis is and uh, also your focus. Sure. So so for anyone that didn't listen to that podcast, so Felicis right now, we're investing out of a $500 million fund. Um, you, you, we come from like pretty humble beginnings. Like Aiden was just investing his own money at first. And then our first fund was $40 million. And that was purely just pre-seed and seed where we were uh, mainly following on participating in rounds. So the fund has come a long way in 10 years. The first institutional fund was in 2010. Um, so, you know, going from 40 to 500 in 10 years is not easy, but it's coincided with a couple of things. One is, you know, we've added more people to the investment team. So the amount of like dollars invested per, per investment team member and partner hasn't changed all that much, maybe a little bit. Um, you know, the, the average series A, series B, et cetera, size has gone up. So in order to continue competing, you need to have a larger fund in order to compete. Um, and then, you know, we found ourselves in a lot of situations where we, we've made some good bets and, and we want to continue putting more money into the companies, maybe owning more upfront, um, given we, we think that, uh, we might be able to spot some good opportunities early on and in the past when we would get lower ownership. Now we're going to try to increase the ownership there. And so, um, that, that is the reason for the larger fund. And then, you know, the broad thesis is, is it, it sounds silly, but like we're total generalists and, and we don't let, 
um, arbitrary uh, things get in our way of finding the best companies. So, uh, you know, when it comes to ownership percentage, uh, I think we're significantly more flexible than the average uh, investment firm. Uh, and, and, you know, for a founder that is going out to raise a round and they're like, hey, you know, our existing investor wants to like co-lead this round or do super pro rata, a lot of other funds would say, well, then, you know, this is not the right round for us. For us, we say, you know, this is a founder that we're super excited about, a market that we're excited about, and a company that we're excited about. You know, if we can own 8% of an amazing business, uh, you know, we're not going to get 20%, but it's fine. You know, that 8%, if, if it becomes as amazing as we think it's going to be, is still going to uh, be a really good returner for our fund. And, and that's, that's one of the ways that we differentiate is kind of like going to the founder and saying, hey, like, what, we're really excited about you. What is a deal that would be delightful um, for you. And, and that, that, that turns the tables a lot for founders and, and helps us win a lot of deals. Um, and then the second thing is I would say just like kind of like being there for our founders. Um, we've always wanted to um, have success with empathy and understand kind of like what our founders are going through. And part of the ways that we do that, uh, you know, in concrete terms is one, we always vote our shares with the founders. So when we invest in a business, uh, we only get economics rights and we give all the voting rights back to the founders. That, that basically makes the founders feel like we're on their side uh, and they can be a lot more open with us. And then the other thing we do, and this was uh, a re- more recent announcement for us, uh, we invest 1% of non-dilutive capital um, towards founder development. Uh, so you know, if we invest $10 million in a company, that founder will get $100,000, no questions asked, and out of our management fees, um, and that will go to uh, whatever they want, whether it's uh, you know therapy, executive coaching, basically anything that uh, will help that founder become a better leader of that company. And for us, like that's a no-brainer, right? I mean, we if for one percent of 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 our investment, uh, if we can help that founder become a better leader, we think that that will return a lot more money to our fund down the road. And and so that's just to give you a sense of kind of like the things that we do around founder success and a little bit about how we structure deals and, and, and get into some of the best companies. Um, and then we tie that all together with, you know, I would say just like a very generalist approach and, and, and uh, a very honest, open debate internally that keeps us sharp and, and makes sure we're always pursuing the right, right companies. Is there a a set of leadership coaches or, you know, uh, career coaches or counselors or, or folks that you can connect those founders to? Yeah. So, so the way that usually happens is we have internally what we call a, a, a founder success function. So there's two people on our founder success team uh, and, and they are the liaisons between um, our founders and uh, like a, a network of executive coaches um, that we work with. Also, like a lot of times founders have their own. Um, and, and, you know, for the most part, what we found is like the reason that we implemented that program in the first place uh, was because we would do NPS surveys and, and try to get feedback from our founders on what was important to them and what they were struggling with. And a lot of them were like, hey, like, you know, we're struggling with, uh, you know, becoming better leaders, um, you know, as our company grows, like, how do you handle a hundred person organization? We've never dealt with that. There's no classes in school that teaches you that. But at the same time, like we're a startup that is cash strapped and we feel bad as founders spending, you know, $20,000, $30,000, whatever the cost is to become, to start to adapt and become a better leader of a hundred person organization. And we said, okay, well, wow. If the problem is like, you really want that, but you feel bad about spending it why don't we just kind of like be, be the middleman here and, and actually just spend that money for you. So you go and get the help that you need. So Nikki, I, I want to talk a bit about uh, the pandemic situation. And I know that yeah. you, you know, 
you've talked about in the past about how you look for market tailwinds, I think as, as many do, um, <laughs> especially those that will be lasting, right. And not fleeting. Mm-hmm. Um, right mm-hmm. now we're seeing a number of shifts that will have lasting effects, uh, conceivably, um, which, which ones are you watching most closely? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, COVID is, it has just, turn everything upside down in so many ways. And it's been so fascinating. Um, and, and for us as, as, as VCs, I think, you know, you need to separate uh, things that are going to be like fads and hot over the next, you know, six, 12, two year, 12 months, two years, however long COVID is going to last versus things that will structurally change um, the way that we do business and the way that we kind of like go about this life. And, and that's the hard part, right? It's like, A, how long will this last? And then B, you know, assuming uh, it, it eventually ends, what behaviors will become normalized to this thing and what will what will just go back to being, uh, what will just go back to pre-COVID, right? So, you know, for example, uh, you know, one of the things that you might think about is like, okay, like people cooking at home, like cooking at home has become a much more popular thing. Are people going to, once COVID ends and people can go back to restaurants, what will happen to the percentage of home-cooked meals? You know, in my opinion, I don't know. Like, I think in general, people didn't like to cook at home and be before COVID, not because they weren't good chefs, but because, you know, it really is not super fun to, to wash your dishes. And it's, (laughs) uh, you know, not fun to go to the grocery store and it takes a long time and and you finish your food in five minutes and the prep and the cleaning took an hour. And, and so, you know, you, you'd rather just go to a restaurant and, uh, you know, have an amazing meal in a social setting with other people. And so, you know, that's one where I, I look at that. I'm like, I think people will go back to eating at restaurants like pretty quickly when they can. Um, you know, I think a, a fascinating one, and a lot of these are like pretty obvious. I don't think any of these are like super groundbreaking or anything, but, you know, I think in general, um, you know, folks uh, uh, like video conferencing, um, I think that is a behavior that's here to stay. I think there's a lot of uh, companies uh, that, that just had way too many in-person meetings that were just very unnecessary and took up a lot of time. And, and people are realizing that they can be almost as effective um, over a video call. Um, you know, I think in-home care, especially like, like within healthcare, uh, is going to be a very long lasting um, trend as people are like, you know what, if during COVID, I realized as a doctor that I could treat my patients uh, well inside of their house, or at least like the opportunity that was there to do that. Maybe we didn't have the right tools or the infrastructure to be able to do it. But like, we think that even post COVID, like we can help patients in the house. I think that's going to be a pretty big trend. Um, so, you know, I, for the most part, you know, call me crazy, but I think almost, I would say most things are going to go back to normal, but there's, there will certainly be trends that are long lasting, and it's really hard as a, as someone in venture to, to kind of know uh, how you should be investing um, uh, when when you really don't know what's going to go back to be normal and what's not what is going to go back to normal and what's not and that's uh, and that's what I try to spend a lot of my day on is trying to think about that kind of stuff. Sure, part of part of the job, right? Um, so you know, Nikki, I know that you you follow macroeconomics closely, and you you've I, I assume you've been watching the public markets, uh, which have largely stayed up. Um, during this pretty significant health and economic crisis. Why, why do you think the public markets have not corrected significantly down yet? Um, yeah, so again, I, I would say probably nothing groundbreaking here, but um, in general, uh, when you have uh, interest rates that are as low as they are right now and, and so much government stimulus being pumped into the economy, um, 
a lot of folks uh, uh, are using that are, are using the stock market as a way to um, find yield, and and so they're they're investing in the stock market. You know, I would say also, you know, there's some companies that have been helped by COVID, and some companies that have been hurt, and so. You know, in general, instead of everything going down, I think what you're just seeing is like a shift of money from companies that have been hurt by COVID to the companies that have been helped by COVID. Um, and in general, like instead of money being taken out of the market, it's just shifting. Um, and then I'd say, you know, in general, like when you have so much money coming into the system, um, and so it, so demand increases, and the number of public companies has essentially stayed constant, right? So supply is constant when demand increases. And supply is constant. Like you have an increase in prices. That's just that's just natural microeconomics right there. Um, and I, I, as simple as that sounds, um, I, I think that's what's happening. You know, if all of a sudden like we were able to two x the number of public companies that were out there, I think asset prices would be about the same. But you know, if if there's only a certain number of good companies out there that the public investor can purchase, um, they're going to go after that small set of um, public companies with a lot more money. And, and that's why price increases. So, you know, I want to talk about, I think a good place to start would actually be talking about sort of your investment framework. And you've you've got this awesome three-part uh, framework that you've used. It's, it's <clears throat> funny enough, it's actually remarkably similar to one that um, I used back in my days doing M&A for a company called Danaher. Uh, but, mm-hmm. yeah, um, no dinner. Yeah. Um, would, would you mind walking us through the, the three parts to your framework and how you think about making investment decisions? Yeah, sure. That, that sounds good. So, so what I'd say is, and the reason that I even have a framework in the first place is because, you know, if you're a generalist, um, in venture, like your head can go all over the place <laughs> yeah. and it can just be really hard to yes. know where to spend your time. You know, when you are seeing a, pitch for a, a seed stage company that is like trying to do like asteroid mining. And then like you have a series B company that's selling like real estate enterprise SaaS. And then you have like a series A company doing a, like a consumer, uh, you know, a consumer network, like a consumer social network. Like if you're, if you don't have a framework, um, you're just going to be like, how should I be spending my time? There's so many shining objects around you that like, you need to have like something that grounds you and something that helps you be like, okay, I'm going to pass on this before I take a meeting or like, I, this sounds interesting and I'm going to pursue this. Um, or else you're just shooting from the hip and, and you're just going to go nuts. So, right. so the way that I think about uh, my framework is um, it's three parts and, and it almost always starts with the market for me. Um, and, you know, it's not just about market size. Like, I think anybody can be like, yeah, this is a, like insurance is a large market, you know, or, or X is a, is a small market. Like that, that, that's not that hard to do. Um, I think what's more important is, is, is just identifying a why now um, in a market that will essentially enable a startup to kind of like ride the tailwinds of that market. So, um, you know, that could be anything from like demographic shifts, um, a shift in the technology infrastructure, changes in consumer sentiment, like regulatory changes. Yep. Um, Basically, like what you're, what I'm looking for is like, okay, there's supply and demand is out of equilibrium, and I think like the market will shift that will put supply and demand back in e- equilibrium, and I am looking for those markets where like that clear why now is there. Um, you know, if if there is no why now, then like I don't really know why there there's an opportunity for that startup in the first place. So that means like the incumbents probably have a stranglehold on that market. The market is operating in equilibrium. And there's probably not that much room for a startup to come and shake things up. Um, 
And so, yeah, that, that, that's my job. My job is to be like, okay, I think something is changing here. There's a clear why now. And now I'm like intrigued and I'm going to continue digging in here because the next part of the framework is, okay, now that I think that there's a why now and a clear market tailwind here, I'm not the smart. I'm like, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't exactly know, you know, like I'm not the first one to know that a why now is happening in the market. I'm maybe in the top 25%, maybe in the top 50%. But what I can know is like, once I identify the market tailwind, it's like, okay, what is a unique business model or a unique strategy to actually go and take advantage of that market tailwind? So like what you can basically say is like, okay, there's been, I I know that there's a tailwind happening here and there's been multiple companies that have kind of like come in and tried to take advantage of this tailwind. And a lot of them have hit, a lot of them have not succeeded or succeeded, but like have not become like super amazing return companies. You have to kind of ask yourself, like, why is that? What did they do wrong? And like, what is this company that I'm talking to right now? Like, what is unique and differentiated about their approach that kind of will enable them to, to uh, separate from the pack and become like the, the standout company that rides this market tailwind? So, you know, um, like maybe uh, all of the companies that have come before this company have been very, uh, you know, one-time revenue. Um, and this company is doing a subscription bundle. Maybe, you know, all the companies that have come before them have tried to go direct to consumer when, you know, the right distribution channel was like to go through the employer. Um, you know, maybe all the companies before them were like trying to maximize gross margin. And then this company's like, you know what, like we're actually going to lower gross margin here, get to scale. And then once we're at scale, we can add on all of these services and then have like really high gross margin. So there's always like different strategies to go about chasing a market tailwind. And I just want to find like something that's fresh and unique and that, that will really get me excited about that company's opportunity. And then the last one uh, in the framework is, is around the founder. Um, you know, in general, if a founder comes to me and has totally nailed number one and has totally nailed number two, um, I'm pretty excited about that founder already. But what will take me over the edge is if that founder, um, you know, has what I call founder market fit. Like they were born to start, not born, but like based on everything that they've done in their career and what they're very, very passionate about, um, they are like the exact person that should be starting that company. And if I can find, you know, that market tailwind and a, an amazing like product or, or business model that is going after that market tailwind, and then a founder that is uniquely qualified to execute that business model or strategy in that market tailwind, like I'm all in. So, so it's pretty simple. Um, and you know, again, nothing groundbreaking, but it just basically kind of like gives me good blinders and lets me focus my time and know where I should be, uh, where I should like do a quick pass or where I should dig in a little bit more. Are, are there places that you go to with regards to number one on the market tailwinds, right? You're looking for drivers, you're looking for exogenous factors, you're looking for general trends, whether they be sentiment or technology, uh, or otherwise, but uh, are there places you go to find data? Like aside from Mary Meeker's report, you know, where where are some places where you can find those tailwinds? Yeah, um, you know, I generally don't like to read. I, I try to read more like broad macro, um, broad like business type of articles. I mean, not articles, but like magazines and books. Um, and so, you know, like. Uh, I pull up the Wall Street Journal every day. Um, I, I subscribe to the Atlantic. Um, I subscribe to the Economist. Um, and when the, the, when those magazines, um, you know, come to my house, like that night is my reading night. Like I am sitting there and I am finishing that magazine from front to back, like within one sitting. Um, and you know, there 
they're the the Atlantic or the Economist, like maybe they'll like let's let's just use um electric scooters, for example. Like in 2018, maybe they would have had like one or two articles about electric sco- scooters. Um, but like they definitely weren't all talking about that one fad, right? Um, whereas if you were like in Silicon Valley, like that is literally all you were hearing about is like bird, lime, bird, lime. Um, and so reading some stuff that is a little bit uh, more generalized um, and not for VCs has helped me kind of like understand these, these larger market trends and, and maybe focus in areas uh, like healthcare or like employee employer relations um, that maybe some other VCs aren't spending as much time in because they're focused more on, you know, like crypto or electric, electric scooters or um, autonomous vehicles. Um, and, and that's generally not where I'm going to be spending most of my time. How do you make sure that what you're reading is, you know, currently on trend, right? Um, instead of maybe it's stale or maybe you're getting on date, getting anchored on data that's that's a little older or it's, or yeah. it's fragile. Um, you know, how do you make sure that you're on kind of that that cutting edge of what's on trend? Yeah. Um, again, I, the thing is, I don't always have to be cutting edge. Um, it, it's, it, it, I, I know like, I'm not a, I'm not only focused on enterprise SaaS. I'm not only focused on micro mobility. I'm not only focused on payments. I know a little bit about all of those markets enough to be dangerous. And so n- knowing that and accepting that I'm never going to be like the first one to identify a trend really helps me out because I can say, look, this trend is like here to stay. Um, this trend is creating some sort of like uh, supply demand uh, imbalance. Um, and my job then is to go and talk to a bunch of companies in that space and try to find the right business model that takes advantage of that trend. If I go out there and I see, oh man, there's a clear why now here, but like, look, there's like already a company in this space that is kind of like the no brainer winner and has like raised a bunch of money and like people got to it before me. Hallelujah. Like I'm just going to move on. The, the amazing thing about venture is that there's so many cool opportunities out there um, that, you know, if I miss something, um, I can kick myself a little bit and I do just so I remember the pain. So I don't, so I remember how it felt. Um, but you know, I can move on pretty fast and, and just move on to the next trend. There's so much going on around us. There's so many trends that are happening that, you know, as long as I'm in the you know top 25% of a, you know, hundred, 200, 300 different themes and trends that are going on around me, uh, I'm confident that, that I'll be able to pick uh, some unique business models in, in them. Well, Best of luck, Nikki, uh, reading that Economist cover to cover with the uh, three-month-old at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, she, she started sleeping a little bit now, like uh, so I have you know a couple hours here and there. Good, good. You know, I just got off the phone earlier today with an entrepreneur, spent about an hour discussing business models. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he has a, a business model in place, which is, you know, recurring subscription uh, software fee on a monthly basis. He's hearing mm-hmm. from a huge contingent of customers that they can't do that because the nature of the, their business is more project oriented. And so they'd rather pay more for like a metered service model, you know, how much use mm-hmm. they get out of the product, they pay for it. So it, it, aligning on the best business model for both the market, for VCs, for the company is is a tricky one, right? How, totally. How do you, you know, attempt to find that right business model. You talked about business model and go to market a bit and point number two, but how do you lock in on what is the appropriate business model that can help lead to fast scale and sort of transformational changes within the industry? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question because it's it's so important to find that you know I, there's there's businesses that I that I meet with on a regular basis that well my general framework on business is that it's a formula and it's just like you know there, there's just a bunch of puzzle pieces that need to kind of be like put together in a perfect way to to create a beautiful picture um, and, and and the pieces of the puzzles are essentially like the various stakeholders um, that are involved in that company's business. So it's like, you know, your customers, your vendors, um, your employees, uh, uh, your investors, uh, like there's all these people that need to be happy with what your company is offering. Um, and, and so what, what I like to typically look at for a company is, are they creating what I call a win-win-win situation? So, uh, you know, by that company existing, um, are they essentially like creating a situation where all of their stakeholders are feeling like they're benefiting by this company existing and like no one is getting screwed. Um, and in my opinion, like when I, when I can find that, like that's what really gets me excited. Um, and it's, it's very rare. It is very rare. Usually a business starts and you know, you're selling, uh, you have like a marketplace, but like one side of the marketplace is like actually kind of, you know, their, their life is getting worse because your business started. And, and you know, you can focus on the other side of the marketplace. Um, but as long as the one side of the marketplace that's pissed about your existence is not happy, like you're going to just have a thorn in your side the entire time. And, um, you know, there's no hard and fast rules, but, but as the closer I can get to a business um, where, where they create a win-win-win uh, situation, uh, the more I get excited because that company will be propelled um, to success by, by all of the people that are rooting for them, which is, which is great. Would you rather see a customer set have to adapt to a new business model and maybe there's some learning and pain in that process, or would you rather a company adopt a business model that's more comfortable for maybe the customer set and more transactable and easily able to get fast traction, but it's maybe, you know, a trickier business model to manage over time. Ooh, I mean, it's getting, we're getting a little bit detailed here. So it's kind of like hard to say in the abstract, um, you know, in general, I think that, um, you know, you need to bring something to the table where the, when the customer hears what you're doing, it, it, like, it, for example, like what you said earlier was a really good example. Like if you're trying to sell a subscription to someone, where it's really like not a subscription, like they're not going to be using it on a regular basis. I've seen so many companies try to sell subscription to people that shouldn't be being sold a subscription to, um, you know, and that's that, that like, if you have really high churn, like that's one of the reasons, like you're trying to sell a, a subscription product to someone that doesn't need a subscription product. So they churn, you, you would have made a lot more money as a business if you just didn't sell that as a subscription and just increase the price of that one-time payment and just been okay with that. And, you know, maybe like add another couple additional services on top of that, try to maximize the LTV from that one payment um, or that one customer interaction, as opposed to, you know, charging a 10th as much and then going like three months of subscription and then basically like losing a customer, you essentially got 30% of the amount of revenue that you were going to get. Um, and then it's also looks really bad because you have like pretty low churn. I mean, pretty high churn. So, um, I mean, to answer, to answer your question, you know, I, I'm looking for a company that is basically creating the right business model for the product that they are selling and is maximizing uh, the lifetime value that they're getting for that customer relative to the amount of money that it costs them to acquire that customer. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. 
It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Well, while we're staying in the abstract and, and finding general heuristics that apply to everything, <laughs> um, I got another one for you. So, in what sure sure hit me in in what types of businesses do you like to see product focused founders um, versus you know growth hacking or marketing focused founders? Um, you know, is there a heuristic or some sort of systematic way that you think about that? Honestly, there. I would say I haven't been in the game long enough. Um, to really have a strong opinion on this question. Um, you know, in general, because I don't have a product and engineering background, um, it's, it historically has been harder for me to get uh, more conviction from a product focused founder where like the differentiation in their company is like how amazing their product is. Um, you know, if that, if that, that amazing product is not tied to some, uh, very unique and interesting business model, um, some very unique and interesting, uh, you know, distribution channel that maybe they figured out that no one else has figured out maybe some, something around like how it creates network effects and maybe other people aren't like really understanding yet. Like it's really hard for me as, as someone who has more of a finance and business background to, 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 um, you know, be all in on like product and, and engineering focused founders. You mentioned earlier that business is a formula um, and it's, and it's clear early on, you know, whether it's going to work out or not. Can you give us an example of, you know, this formula? Um, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like it's, it's, it's simply uh, how much money comes into your business and how much money goes out of your business and you want more money to come in than goes out. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, for a lot of, for a lot of startups, at least to start, uh, you know, they're spending a lot on R and D and they're spending um, a lot on like sales and marketing. And, and so for, for the most part, like a startup is not going to have more money coming in than going out. But, you know, if, as you look at the unit of the customer or the transaction, ideally you would want, uh, more money coming in than going out by a significant uh, margin. And, and you want that to be repeatable and you want that to have room for expansion. Um, and, you know, if it doesn't have room for expansion, you, what you want to see is that the, the, the gap between how much money is coming in and going out is so large 
um, to start that even as more competition comes and that margin might decrease a little bit, um, that company still has so much uh, margin for error that, that they can ride that and, and ideally crush the competition as they continue to grow. Um, so, you know, you might have a strategy of like having super low gross margins to start just to get scale, but like you really need to prove that like over time, um, as you scale, there's going to be some kind of switch that turns on, whether it's, uh, you know, you, you lock up one side of the marketplace and you get pricing power or whatever it is that's going to enable you um, to have, to have a, what I'd call, simply put, like a good business. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people forget that. Um, and, and it's pretty easy, I think, early on to, to tell, um, at least for like 80 to 90% of companies, like, hey, like this is a formula that, that, that's probably just like not going to work. Um, or is going to work. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's where I, I try to keep sharpening uh, my, my thought process and, and how I look at businesses and um, uh, try to really get to conviction on that early. Because if you can't get con- to conviction early on whether this formula is going to work or not, then either you're going to make like no investments because like you, you can't get to conviction on anything or like if you if you don't figure out the right formula there and you keep on making investments in companies that that aren't going to, be able to figure out this equation, like you're just going to make bad investments. So I think that's a pretty uh, key part of investing, especially early on. What What is a good unit economic heuristic? You know, what what sort of LTV to CAC ratio are you looking at and saying, ooh, this looks healthy, you know, on paper? Um, you know, there's a lot of different industries um, and every industry has uh, a different uh, formula that, that matters to them, you know, for like some companies, uh, you know, that are doing like enterprise sales or, or, versus like SMB sales, one might be like a three to one, might one might be a five to one because there's just more risk associated, um, you know, with, with some types of sales than others. Um, and, and so there's really no like one number. Um, what I'd say is, um, you know, the, the more LTV you get from an individual customer or an individual transaction, the more leeway you will have to spend on customer acquisition and the more leeway you will have to basically be able to drop your prices in order to keep that customer. So, so I wouldn't say it's like an absolute number because there's so much variability across different industries, but you know, like I would just say the, the more it is and the re- less you are relying on, um, this is also really important, the less you are relying on that customer being with you for a very long time, um, the better it is. So if you're like, oh, this company's LTV CAC is like four to one, and we're also assuming that this customer stays with us for like eight years, like that's probably not great, right? Because no one can can identify whether that customer is actually going to stay with you for eight years. What would be really good is if you're like, hey, this is four to one in like the first six months. Like that is that is amazing. Um, and you know what? If that customer leaves you after six months, it's all good. Like you already made four, t- four times your money on that one customer. And it, it, you know, it'd be great to keep them and take that to seven to one, 10 to one over the next one to two years. Um, but because you had such a big gap between LTV and CAC at the very beginning, it gives you a lot more leeway. Um, you know, more competitors are going to come to the market. You might have to start spending on more CAC. You might have to drop your prices. But you know, if you went from four to one to three to one, that's much better than going from like two to one to one to one, right? So um, bigger is better. You know, when you're working with founders, you know, post-investment, what's your approach to coaching and advising? You know, I've, I've found there's kind of a fine line between, you know, you don't want to be the overbearing advice giver, but you also don't want to, you know, share, you don't want to withhold insights that could really be, um, you know, beneficial to the founder and their business. So, you know, how do you think about that and how do you strike that balance? 
Yeah, um, definitely. So um, this one has been a, a particularly challenging question for me, especially because I haven't really had too much operating experience and I've, I've, ne- I've never started a company. So um, a lot of the perspective um, that I bring to um, uh, the businesses that I invest in is, is, you know, the perspective is one of two things. One, it's, um, you know, I've seen this play out at many other different companies that I've worked with. And so based on what I've seen, I can also help you. And then the other thing is, I understand um, the, pub, the, 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 the financing markets significantly better probably than you do because that's what I do all day is, you know, I, I know what valuations are. I know like what other investors are looking for in terms of milestones. Um, I know how to, you know, do financial modeling probably better than many founders. And, and so, you know, my job is one to be like, hey, these are a lot of the things that I've seen out there that are relevant to you based on other companies that I invested in. And then, hey, my job is I, I believe in your vision. I think you're an amazing founder that can go and build this awesome company. The only thing that's stopping you is, you know, making sure you have enough cash in the bank to go hire the right people and to continue executing on this vision that you have. And so like, how can we work together to essentially always make sure that you have the cash that you need? And like, part of that is, uh, you know, planning cash really well, making sure you're staying on top of it, making sure you know, when you have get down to a certain amount of runway that you are starting to think about fundraising. And then also it's like, you know, when you're going to be at that point that you start need to start thinking about fundraising, what are the milestones that you need to be at in order to raise a good round that won't dilute you too much, put more money in your bank account so that you continue hiring employees and continue going after that vision. So, um, you know, when I, when I have conviction that, you know, on, on those two points of like things that I've seen in other businesses and then things that I know about the financing markets, uh, when I have like conviction on those two areas, I'm pretty, I, I wouldn't say pushy with my founders, but I definitely make sure my opinion is heard. Um, you know, if, if it's like a, if it's like a product and engineering question and the founder's like, Hey, like, can we do like a product session or something like that? You know, I'll do my best to help, but I also go into it being like, Hey, I just want you to know, like, I'm not like, the product investor that you might want to have on your cap table. Um, and if that's who you want on your cap table, maybe like in the next round, when we're looking for a new investor, like that is something that we can gear your fundraising to. If it's, you know, all else equal, the same valuation on the table, same round size. Um, and then you're debating between taking this one new fund versus another fund or this one partner versus this other partner. Um, let's go with the partner that, that you want to, that, that, that will bring a unique skill to the, to the team uh, or to the board that, that, that you want. So um, that, that's how I typically manage it. But again, it's not easy. Like sometimes I've, I, I get nervous that I'm like nudging a little too hard. Sometimes I, know, worry that maybe I'm, you know, not nudging enough. And it's a constant um, battle inside my head on, on knowing what is the, what is the right way to approach it. What keeps you up at night? You know, the ones that you invested in that you shouldn't have, or the ones that you didn't invest in that you wish you had? Um, I did a little bit of both, but probably, uh, the ones that I did invest in that I shouldn't have. Um, <laughs> Me too. uh, because I go back and I'm like, man, you know what? what, what, why did I, why did I do that? Um, that was not very smart. Um, what did I believe that, that, that didn't go out turn right. And, and, you know, I've always had the belief that like, you need to kind of like put yourself down when you make a mistake in order to, to really remember the pain, um, and to kind of next time you're in that situation again, you'll be like, I remember how much that hurt. And I'm not going to make that same mistake. Cause if you just kind of like, don't learn from your mistakes and don't, kind of kick yourself a little bit, you're just going to keep on making the same mistakes. And like, 
I'm just trying to continue to like sharpen uh, my mind, continue to like kick myself when I make mistakes so that I, that I make less of them in the future. And then, you know, the deals that I, I didn't do that, that ended up um, going out and, and doing big things, you know, it, it's, it's just really hard in this business to, to get too worried about those. Thankfully, I don't have a ton of those um, yet. You know, I've, I've only been doing this for four years and, and so far, um, you know, I haven't missed like the next like Facebook or Uber or anything like that. Um, but it, it's definitely going to come. It's definitely going to really hurt. I'm not looking forward to it. Um, my, my, my perspective on it is, uh, you know, uh, you just got to keep learning from, from your mistakes. And, and, and there's so many companies out there. Uh, and there's so many different forks in the road moments for all of these companies that that uh, you just need to keep focusing on on making your own like framework and investment process better and good things will come. All right. So quick segment here. This is a, a hypothetical. I'm going to give you a hypothetical sure. situation. And, um, and you've got to ask for three specific data points um, based on the situation. Um, so let's say that you have a consumer SaaS company that comes to you. They're doing 300K in ARR. They're growing 20% month over, month over month, and that's all the data you have about the company. Uh, which three data points do you ask for and why? This is assuming I know what the company does? Yes. Let's assume yeah. you know the one-liner. Okay, that sounds good. Um, you know, so 300K growing 20%. Uh, first, I would want to know how much they've raised. Um, you know, if they've raised $20 million to get to 300K, that's not as exciting if they were bootstrapped or just like raised a tiny friends and family round. Yep. Um, that, that is more exciting. Um, second, I would I would try to figure out what their retention is. Um, you know, if they're keeping 100% of their customers, uh, that means that they're probably working on something pretty special. Uh, uh, and, you, you know, you don't have to worry about a leaky bucket uh, all you really have to worry about is continuing getting more customers um, as opposed to, you know, if they had like 80% churn after like six months, you're like, wow, something, I mean, they got to 300 K of ARR, which is great, but uh, they, they've probably lost like many, many millions of ARR. And, and every time they add a new customer, it's they're basically going to leave. So what's the point? Um, and then, you know, on the third, um, you know, I, I, again, this is me going, uh, I mean, Maybe you would ask around uh, how much it costs to acquire that customer because um, I think that's pretty important um, and, and try to really kind of like hone in on the LTV CAC formula and see if there's a lot of leeway there um, to either lower LTV or increase CAC in the future and still have a really good business. Awesome. Uh, Nikki, what resources have you found particularly valuable that you would recommend to listeners? Um, you know, just again, because I'm so market focused and because I'm just like so fascinated by what's happening in the economy and, and, and I just want to kind of always be up to date with, you know, politics, macroeconomics, like the world, the way that the business and, and the markets are moving all the time. I, I think, um, you know, reading The Economist every week has been really good for me, especially given that like big, like international perspective. Uh, I love that Atlantic. I think, you know, they write some of the most thought provoking uh, articles out there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty maniacal about reading the wall street journal multiple times per day. Uh, and you know, I just try to have a lot of conversations with, with interesting people and, and try to learn from everybody that you talk to and understand their perspective. And, and hopefully again, you can, you can take in all of this information that's coming in around you and don't let it just pass you by, but but really try to soak it up and, and try to um, learn from it so that, you know, when the amazing, uh, investment opportunity comes and hits you in the face, 
you, you know that you can, uh, you, you should run with it. Nikki, what do you know you need to get better at? Um, it's just so many things. Uh, I, you know, I think I just need to constantly be learning, um, and, and not give up. I think it's easy in this business. Like you make a couple of good investments or whatever. Uh, and you can be like, Oh, like I know what I'm doing, but like, really, you don't know what you're doing. And, and while you think, uh, you're good, like there's a lot of other people that also think that they're good that are constantly improving too. And constantly chasing the best founders and the best opportunities. And so like, you really can't take a step back. Like you really need to always be acting like your day one. Um, you need to always have like the hustle and the grind mentality. And it, as long as you have that and you're open and you're learning, uh, you should be good. So but that's the biggest thing. And then really understanding, uh, constantly like making sure that you are, uh, understanding your biases and the way that you think. Um, it is just so important in this industry. Um, you know, there's so many different shiny objects coming at you. There's so many different, uh, companies that, you know, another investor says, Hey, you got to meet this company. They're so great. Or, or, Oh my God, like this company, you know, is, is, uh, is like super hot and you just need to like, take a step back. You need to like, think about what matters to you. You need to make sure you're like sticking to your framework, um, and, uh, not letting your biases, like make your lizard brain go crazy. (laughs) Well, good. And then, uh, Nikki, what's the fine, uh, finally, what's the best way for listeners to to connect with you? Just shoot me an email, Nikki at felices.com and I K I, um, at F E L I C I S.com. Well, Nikki, this has been a real pleasure. I, I always enjoy uh, your your comments and your material and really glad we had a chance to connect here and, and go a bit deeper. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank mm-hmm. you.